You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. That was, by this time, he had built a 150-foot dock hewed out of uh, the local wood there. He had planted uh, all sorts of gardens, pineapples, and he had an orchard with five or six different kinds of uh, trees. And he had a cabin by this time and would soon build a second cabin. And when people came up, they could they could tour the camp. They, they had a rope swing where you could jump out or you could see Trapper Zoo, which consisted of uh, alligators in a, in a cage, lots of alligators, <laughs> things like a, a, an albino raccoon and um, some other things like that. And he sold anything he could possibly sell. That was James Snyder, author of Life and Death on the Loxahatchee, the story of Trapper Nelson. And I'm Misty Little, your host for the podcast. Late last year, I decided to start a book club for the podcast and chose Life and Death on the Loxahatchee for a few reasons. One of them being that it has been sitting on my bookshelf for far too long and I knew I needed to read it. And another because of the interesting folk history of the area along the Loxahatchee River, an area that the Ocean Lake Trail traverses and an area that many Florida Trail hikers explore, particularly in the Jonathan Dickinson State Park area. But who was Trapper Nelson? I had read the book, but I wanted to talk to the author himself to find out why he was curious enough to devote the time to write about this mysterious man who lived for decades along the Loxahatchee River and to hear his own thoughts about the man behind the legend. If you didn't get a chance to read the book but wanted to listen to the book club discussion, I think this is an excellent episode to jump in and get an idea of who Trapper Nelson was and maybe entice you to pick up the book and read for yourself or any of the other historical books Mr. Snyder has written as well. All right, on to my conversation with James Snyder. I would like to just start maybe if you want to introduce yourself a little bit of who you are. I went through your, your biography on your website and you have a very interesting life. And maybe before we talk about uh, Trapper Nelson in the book, but you could just go back a little bit and tell us who you are as a writer and how you came to live in Florida and, and, and all of that interesting history. All right, Missy. Um, I graduated from uh Northwestern University School of Journalism back in 1958. And uh, I soon went to Washington and got a job as a, a Washington editor for a group of trade magazines serving the hospital field and baking and restaurants and things like that. Um, I saw it, it, it was a time when government was changing really from the sleepy years of the Eisenhower administration to the very busy regulatory years of the Kennedy administration. And so I started a company that represented all sorts of medical and business magazines as their Washington Bureau. And that morphed gradually into uh, our starting our own magazines. And so our company was called Enterprise Communications. We published... uh, five magazines and did a lot of national trade shows. And in the meantime, uh, I was getting awfully tired of the insular nature of Washington and I was getting tired of winter. So in 1979, I moved the family to Boca Raton, Florida, which was pretty unusual at the time because the company I left 
in D.C., and I continued to commute back and forth. So I, I, I really had two bases, you might say, at that time. It actually worked out very well because in those days you could uh, you could commute uh, in a couple of hours from Palm Beach Airport to Washington, and some people who commuted by car were taking the same time. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> that worked out well. And uh, I uh, began kayaking in 1982. That was a lot of fun. That led us up to Jupiter, Florida, where we bought a home. And uh, and that led me eventually up to Trapper Nelson's uh, camp in the uh, Jonathan Dickinson State Park, which was only, let's say, three miles from our home. And that started uh, a series of books. I've now done 11 books. Oh, by the way, we sold our company and... You're saying, how could this guy do all that? Well, <laughs> we sold our company in 1997, and I was a free man at the age of 59, I guess it was, to uh, do what I always wanted to do when I grew up, and that was, I guess, to be an author. Nice. And that coincided with my um, interest in Trapper Nelson, just kayaking and going up there and finding that what was supposed to be the centerpiece of this State Park, I guess it's the third largest in the system. Uh, the information consisted of one 8 by 11 sheet tacked onto a pole uh, summarizing the whole life of Trapper Nelson. Well, that didn't seem quite uh, complete enough, I guess you could say. And I started asking questions and eventually wound up doing a lot of research, interviewing Trapper Nelson's family. And uh, out of that came a book called Life and Death on the Loxahatchee, which is now undergoing its, or just has undergone its fifth printing. And wow. uh, and that was about a very fascinating man who, as I say, who went upriver back in 1934 and became his own real-life Tarzan and fascinated a lot of people in the process. Yeah, that's the thumbnail sketch. I've since done ten other books, uh, most of them about the history of South Florida. They're all on Amazon and and uh, in ebook form and paperback form and hardcover. So um, that, as I say, is the thumbnail sketch. And where do we go from here, Missy? Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. I think it's a very interesting life. Uh you know, creating a business and getting all of that off the ground and then kind of being able to shuttle to some passion projects, uh, which a lot of passion projects, you've been able to accomplish a lot uh, with that with that in the last 20 years or so. Um, I want to, yeah, since this is about Trapper Nelson, we'll focus a little on him, um, but I do want to talk about your other books in a little while too. So the, from, the, from the first point you're going up Trapper Nelson's uh, place, when, how many years did it take you before you were like, hey, I think I really should start talking to people and digging into this a little bit more? Was it within that, that year or just like within? Oh, yeah, I'd say it was within that year. You know, a journalist is cursed with his insatiable curiosity. That's what drives most of us into that profession. And the second thing that motivates us is if you see a story nobody else has done, you want to do it before they do. Yeah. So. Um, within a year, I guess I had, uh, 
written this book, which came out in first in 2002, that sparked a lot of other books and, and yeah. discoveries that this area, which has had human habitation for some 5,000 years, really had very little written about it. So that that stimulated the interest there. Yeah, yeah. So how hard was it? I guess, where did you start by looking at newspaper clippings and things like that, gathering that kind of resources? Or how did you even begin to get into contact with some of his friends and family? Well, I think one thing leads to another. You know, you're, you're right in that to interview, you find somebody who knew him or who had stayed in his camp. Um, and uh, I'm just thinking, Missy, should we get a little more background for our audience as to who he was and what he did? No, yeah. Yeah. That... Have some building blocks in place, I think. Sure. We can we... certainly do that. Uh, he he was born Vincent Natukowitz up in Trenton, New Jersey in 1908. And he was from a large family. And they they were Polish, but they also had a Russian name of Nasakovich. And the reason for that is that his father came from the town of Vilnia, which is now in Lithuania, but, <laughs> but at the time was traded back and forth between Poland and Russia, depending on who was invading whom that year. And uh, <clears throat> so the family uh, was in Trenton, New Jersey, as I said, and Vince grew up in an environment uh, where he and his brother Charlie, who was eight years older, began trapping and began trapping in, I guess, a state park up in Trenton where they were paid $5 a piece for muskrats. And that led, I think there was some family discombobulation, which I don't need to get into here, but pretty soon Charlie and Vince and a friend of Vince's were riding the rails back in 1928. Yeah. And uh, they fancied themselves as trappers, and I think they really were serious at it. But they were run, you know, riding in boxcars with hobos and playing poker for money and eating beans out of tin cans, just like the movie stereotypes uh, show people doing at that time. He wound up in Arizona, California, wound up in Mexico. He kept a nice little scrapbook, which which was of great uh, help to me to understand uh, what he was all about. I suppose everybody listening to this has a uh, a family, an old family scrapbook somewhere that's got those thick black pages and little tiny square black and white photos with mm -hmm. holders in the corners. You know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah. And so I, I saw page after page of young Vince standing with a a skinned uh, animal of one kind or another. <laughs> and that was his proudest thing that he did. And uh, they went back to Trenton eventually. And and then one winter decided to go down to Florida, ride the rails. And uh, they were pulling up in a, inside a boxcar uh, one night and one early morning in the dawn of 1929. 
and the train stopped right over, which is now the Dixie Highway Bridge uh, dividing to question Jupiter. And they, he opened the door and he looked out and he saw, I guess the tide was coming in because the water was blue and he could see breakers on the water outside. And he looked down and he could see uh, clear water with uh, mullet on top and snook stacked up uh, on the bottom. And he said to his buddies, let's, let's stop here. They, they were thinking of going to Miami or down in the Keys, but they said, this is good enough for us. We're not going <laughs> to stop here. So they jumped off the train and they went to uh, a place called Carlin Park today. But then it was just kind of wild beach and they lived there for several months trapping and they would uh they'd get their skins and they would uh put them on trains to sell them to wholesalers up in new york and philadelphia so there was a, there was a system to it they made some money and uh the only problem with it all was that vince and his friend whose name was john dykus were buddies and charlie who was eight years older, was kind of a bossy sort who thought himself as uh, Vince's protector, let's say. Mm -hmm. And the t it was kind of a triangle where the, the two young guys wound up um, being displeased, let's say, with Charlie, who yeah. had a record and a drinker and, and one thing. And it led to a murder. And I don't want to get too much into the book, otherwise nobody wants to read it. Right. <laughs> it led to a murder trial, and the upshot was that Charlie was sentenced to life in prison. And so by that time, by the way, that trial was in the newspapers from Trenton all the way down to Florida. Wow. And, uh, and Vince had his share of unfavorable publicity because he happened to be the only witness who could testify against his brother. So after going back to the New Jersey area and working in a dairy farm and saving up some money, he decided to come down here in 1934. And uh, that he did. And he uh, got some traps and rode a great big rowboat all the way nine and a half miles up the Loxahatchee River. And there he found, I think, the foundation of an, of an old hunter's or trapper's camp and decided that's where he was going to build his own camp. And over the years, uh, let's say we're now up to 1935, 36, it was in the midst of the Depression. Uh, Trapper Nelson by this time, and by the way, he changed his name to Nelson simply because Nat Tickowitz was too hard for people to pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> so by this time, he was in his mid-20s. He he was six foot two, two hundred and twenty pounds. He probably could have been played linebacker for the Miami Dolphins at that time, but uh, he was more uh, envisioned to be a, a modern Tarzan, actually living up there with a camp. And uh, pretty soon, people who had not much else to do in Jupiter, which was still a town of maybe three hundred people, uh, those those who could afford gasoline for their motors and for their boats would come on up to Trappers to see what he was up to. And uh, and eventually, I'm making a long story short, he got the idea of forming something called Trappers Zoo and Jungle Garden. <laughs> and that was, by this time, 
he had built a 150-foot dock hewed out of uh, the local wood there. He had planted uh, all sorts of gardens, pineapples, and he had an orchard with five or six different kinds of uh, trees. And he had a cabin by this time and would soon build a second cabin. And when people came up, they could they could tour the camp. They, they had a rope swing where you could jump out or you could see Trapper Zoo, which consisted of uh, alligators in a, in a cage, lots of alligators, <laughs> things like a, a, an albino raccoon and um, some other things like that. And he sold anything he could possibly sell, such as bamboo fishing poles. He would rent boats. Um, if anything in his garden was uh, blooming, you know, like fresh pineapples, they would be out there on the dock for people to buy all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and um, soon he became um, quite popular because at the time, Tarzan movies were a weekly serial that were playing at the local Lyric Theater in Stewart um, up, up the road, a town then of maybe six or 7,000 people. So people went to the movies every week and there somebody like Johnny Weissmiller was playing Tarzan and they put two and two together and realized that the, the Tarzan they had was a lot better looking than the one in the movie. <laughs> and uh, at that time, Jupiter Island, which some of your viewer or your audience may know as the highest per capita income uh, area today, it's a village really, a town, uh, was then a private club, uh, pretty much under the control of uh, a man named Reed, who was also, he was a heir to the Remington Arms. Oh, okay. Nations Company. And he dabbled in producing plays and musicals and things in New York, because that was their base in New York. So pretty soon... Uh, he was taking his guests up to see Trappers. And so were a lot of other people in in uh, Jupiter Island because this guy Reed, uh, because he produced plays and things, he hobnobbed with the Broadway crowd and, and the movie crowd. And pretty soon people like Gary Cooper and uh, I'm trying to think of some of them. I'm sorry, I can't they come, come to my mind right now. Yeah, it's okay. But, but the point is, Nathaniel Reed, who was uh, the son of Joseph Reed, would say that in those days, you would people would come down to stay for two weeks with all the, lots of luggage and everything. It wasn't like today where you pop in on an airplane for you know a long weekend. They came down to stay, and the and the host had this task of how do I entertain these people? Well, Reed kept a, a boat down near Jupiter Inlet, about nine miles from Trapper's Place. And uh, his guests would get on there. One, they would spend the morning fishing in the in the wide part of the Loxahatchee River. And then they would go up about seven miles to a place called Kitchen Creek, which is near my house. And there the reeds had managed to clear an area where they had picnic tables and a grill and that's where they would grill their fish. And uh, 
And then the highlight of the afternoon was, let's say, around 2 or 3 o'clock, they would meander up what was now a very narrow, twisting freshwater that looked totally like a jungle. Like yeah. These New Yorkers and people like that. This was darkest Africa. This was the Amazon. And there, all of a sudden, in a clearing on its long, rough-hewn log dock, would be Tarzan himself, <laughs> dressed in a you know probably with a like a leopard skin shorts, and uh, with a pith helmet, and he usually have an indigo snake wrapped around him, and uh, and of course he the first thing when people would get off, he'd wrap the snake around some giggly girl, <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd take him on a tour, and he grew to love that, and other people from. Jupiter, uh, Jupiter Inlet, also Jupiter, I'm sorry, I'm calling it Inlet, Jupiter Island, um, would do the same with their guests. And pretty soon, uh, down in Palm Beach at the Breakers Hotel, uh, which is a five-star hotel today and was then, they had a daily uh, cruise ship that that, uh, departed every morning about 8 o'clock. And it took people all the way up to Trappers, which oh, wow. was a 30-mile trip. Yeah. They'd have a nicely catered lunch, and uh, and Trapper would do his thing. And, again, he, when all these rich people went back to their winter cocktail parties and dinners in Paris and London and New York, you know, somebody would say, well, what was the exciting thing you did last winter? And, and they start talking about their trip to Trapper Nelson. So he became very popular. Uh, and, you know, all this time he was billed as a recluse, a hermit. And in my research, I never found a hermit who had so many friends and contacts with people. <laughs> so that's that's basically the background. Yeah. The whole that whole period, especially, you know, after reading the book, the thirties and even the forties just seemed like such an idyllic time not just for you know trapper himself but you know it's uh, jupiter and that that era of florida it's on the precipice of a lot of change and i i appreciated how you wrote and kind of described the area and gave us a little bit of a taste of you know pre-development uh life out there on the river and uh, kind of makes you sad now thinking about just how much has changed and what's lost for sure. Um, but you know something, Misty, uh, excuse me. Um, none of the people then appreciated what they had the way we do looking backwards. And, and I'm sure somebody 30 years from now will say, remember yeah. the girl <laughs> 2023, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll be wall-to-wall condos up and down the Lactaceae River. I don't know. Uh, let's hope but, not. <laughs> but um, yeah, but that era, era was also the Depression too. Yeah, that's true. And it was an era of cars that broke down frequently, and and mosquitoes, and lack of bug control of all kinds. And well, you know, I don't have to describe much more than that. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, looking back, I, it was the life of Tarzan, and I guess we all have a little Tarzan, Jane, and us. So yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. There's a lot of pros and a lot of cons to, to that era uh, yeah. time period for sure. Um, but I, I think in my in my head, I am always thinking about just like environmentally what what, what we've lost, especially in Florida. Um, and so getting that that aspect of it uh, in the story was was interesting to see. And um, obviously, you know, the book keeps going and there's so much more to his life and interesting twists and turns and things that, you know, I hadn't, wasn't familiar with. And how was that for you? Like, as you're digging deeper into his life, coming up for these little tidbits, like, and putting it all together, how, how was that? What, what did well, you feel I uncovering these things? I, I think the more you uncover, the more you find somebody who's just like the rest of us, really. You know, they have your bad moments, your good moments. Um, you do thoughtless things. You have your little petty prejudices and so forth. And maybe you don't come out to be quite the Sterling Tarzan movie character that you started with. Yeah. And that would be true, I'm sure, of you and me, too, if somebody dug deeper than <laughs> yeah. we wanted. So... I'll give you a good example of that. Um, just recently, we came upon 70-year-old home movies that Trapper's family from Trenton took. They they came uh, down just about, in the 1950s, I should say, they came down for their summer vacations, which were two or three weeks at a time, and they stayed with Trapper, and they helped him build some things that took more than one person to do such as a second cabin. And they took a lot of family movies. So we had like three gigabytes of family movies, which could have, uh, I don't know, taken several days to watch. But they were uh, movies of everything the family did, you know, going to Disney World and this and that and swimming in the ocean. So we were able to, to uh, massage them down to about, 12 minutes of Trapper Nelson in his camp. And what you see, you see the real Trapper Nelson for the first time. By this time, he's in his 40s. He's not quite looking like Tarzan of the movies, little paunch maybe. Mm -hmm. And and he's got that pith helmet, and he's doing things which are not entirely environmentally correct today. You <laughs> see him, you see him uh, taking a knife and skinning an alligator. You see him uh, chopping up a turtle, which was live to begin with, yeah. and things that would make people squeamish, you know? You see yeah. them catching more fish. I mean, just tons of fish these people caught. And some of them just were thrown away, uh, not on the movie, but also part of my research was the fact that uh, he didn't hesitate to eat a manatee. If find yeah, it. right. <laughs> Not good today, you know. Yeah, so a little, a little less heroic, but in the in the pre-war days of the depression, that's what people did. Yeah, you know? the context of the times too. And they like he had this also in the movie was this rope swing that he had, and you see, uh, first of all, there's Trapper, he, not in the movies, but he's wrestling alligators all the time just for show when people come to see him. But so he's got this rope swing that the that his five-year-old, seven-year-old uh, grandnephews are swinging on and out into the river. 
the same river that produced all the alligators that he's got in his pages. You know? <laughs> now, can you imagine the liability issues today? Yeah. It's, just, it's just a different era. Yeah. So I don't know where I was leading by this. I, I, I think the following. Um, I began to see this book as a bigger picture where Trapper embodied people who are finally engulfed by development, who are trying to live a fairly pristine, primitive life and who just can't do it anymore. And and what I mean by that is by the 1960s, the early 60s, um, Trapper was became a victim of two things, I think. One was his own ambition and the inability to maintain the property that he that he developed. And what I mean by that is he started acquiring three acres just around that little original camp. And over the years, by getting delinquent tax acquisitions and things of this, very astute things, he, he acquired over 1,100 acres on the Loxahatchee River. And that was quite a feat. And one of the reasons he acquired this land, I think, and I'm just surmising this, is that once you acquire, let's say, another 50 acres down the river, you have an urge to protect it. So you acquire another 50 acres <laughs> down the river. And eventually you find yourself fencing it off because the more land you have, uh, the more people are poaching on it. Meanwhile, your taxes are rising and and the, your family, the people who came down in the 50s to see you, are the, the older ones are dying off and the kids who were one-time nephews and they're six or eight years old are now in college with their own lives to, to lead. And there's nobody to help him. Yeah. And so suddenly he is harassed by gangs of youths who see this as a some kind of rite of passage to come up and challenge the legend of the Loxahatchee. And he gets worried about liability issues, about having to fence off his whole property. And, you know, his health is not as good as he had hoped because he was starting to get prostate problems and so forth. And the second reason where I see this in a larger context is he's a victim of development. Mm -hmm. The same era where he was trapping every morning, go out with his traps, was now dotted by five-acre plots, uh, not in his own 1,100 acres, but just across the river. Um, you found people from Palm Beach coming up and having weekend uh, vacation homes and things like that. And you had Interstate 95 uh, running. Well, at one point, it would have run right through his property. And th through some finagling and lobbying, they made it run, I'm going to say, a mile from his property. Mm -hmm. But you could still hear cars whizzing by, or, or could at the right times, if the wind was right. And I think uh, maybe the whole thing began to lose its mystique, and Trapper became at least perceived by others as paranoid 
a very nasty recluse who by 1961 had uh, used dynamite to fell trees across the river and put up signs, no trespassing, and who pretty and who closed the uh, camp to tour boats, and who, in the in the reports of some people who were friends who'd come to see him, uh, hollered out at him from behind a tree. You know, he'd appear with a shotgun, and saying, "I'm not your friend. Go away. I don't want to see anybody." And uh, yeah. I think it was a combination of all these various things pressing in on him. I can see a very good movie about that if they take it in the broader context. Right. Uh, yeah. Almost like, let's, you know, we pictured Tarzan, I assume, in the Belgian Congo or something like that. It would be almost as if Tarzan were, were encroached on by a copper company or something like that. Mm-hmm. Land around him. And so there you have it. Instead, it's it's South Florida development encroaching on him and citrus groves and yes. you name it. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it takes that idyllic 1930s or what we, you know, wistfully look back at as idyllic and, and turns it into, um, you know, he had all this freedom and then, yeah, he's he's fencing himself in. And so he's he's tying himself down Um which, I mean, we could probably make that a metaphor for many people. <laughs> in our 20s, we're free, and then we tie ourselves down to other things in life. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. The whole That, that whole period was, was, was sad for me, um, and probably for other people reading the book. And, um, I mean, at the time, you got to interview some of his family members and people actually who met him. Um, I'm sure some of those folks have passed away uh, since this initial printing, but um, what was it like talking to some of those people and getting their perspectives on, on Trapper? Um, well, I would say most of the people that I interviewed were had one-time experiences. Okay. Like there was a, you know, a, a, a man now who was say 12 at the time he went up to Trapper Nelson's and he he looked up at what he thought was a giant of a man with with enormous hands and uh, he was fearful of him and he he couldn't uh, get away fast enough and then there was a woman I interviewed actually she had lived about five doors down from me she was the farthest house before the the state park land took over the former Trapper Nelson property. And uh, she used to take her children to him to babysit. Hmm. She couldn't find a babysitter. She'd drive up this uh, one mile long sugar sand road at Trapper's and leave the kids with him. And he was a, a wonderful mentor, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> patient you know, watched over them while they went swimming in the river and things like that. So there's two dramatically different uh, views of the guy. And yeah. I say so many people just had one vignette to tell me, like a, a friend of mine who recently passed away at the age of 85 remembers when he was a Boy Scout and Trapper had a an enormous uh, Chiquita hut and Above that was a loft, 
So the boys would have their meal. They bring them out on a Friday night, I guess. And the, and the boys would have their meal and whoop and holler around. And then at, at nighttime, like at nine o'clock at night, Trapper would uh, make them climb a ladder and go up into the loft. That's where they were going to sleep. And then he'd pull the ladder up. <laughs> they had to stay there all night. So all this, this friend of mine remembered was uh, fighting the bugs and uh, that kind of thing all night. Yeah. Uh, but that's, as I say, one vignette. And, a, and another one would be one of the boat captains who came up with a tour boat day after day after day said he thought he knew Trapper as well as anybody but then he said, I really guess I didn't know him. He was enigmatic. Yeah. Yeah. I could go on and on with. with oh, I know. Yeah. Stories. Uh, and I uh, guess, do you have all of those on tape or written down to, to, to reflect uh, on? Or you yeah, just. I, I, have, I have a lot of them on tape. Okay. It's been Good. a while since I looked at the tapes or anything. So I. Yeah. Not sure. But, but then later on, um, uh, I got in touch with Phil Selmer, who was the six-year-old grandnephew who used to visit him in the summers. And it was Phil, who's now 76 years old, who found the old films in his attic and who had them digitized and given to me. And I, I'm with I and some professional editors uh, boiled them down to just the footage on Trapper. But anyway, uh, Phil was enormously helpful, and uh, yeah. he arranged me for me to interview Trapper's sisters and uh, some other family members who now live uh, in Trapper near on the, in the Keys. Okay. And uh, you see, they were the recipients of the $1.2 million that was received from the sale of his place to the state park. Wow. They went from Trenton to investing their money in several uh, winter cabins, I guess you could call them. I think they rented them out, but they stayed there too. Yeah. So I spent a long evening with them. They were a little wary of me. You know, I mean, I'm, I was a stranger and they thought I was going to write some shocking expose. Yeah. And uh, I think we all hit it off pretty well. Good. But they had a... a greater dimensional view of Trevor. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is, a, a, or part of the book is a murder mystery. And um, I think readers will be intrigued by that aspect. And it's something I'm not going to get into because why well, read the book then, you know? Right. Right. So do you want, you don't want to share your opinion on what you think happened? No. Okay. No, would be Leave it up in the air. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we I did a book club uh, with a few people who read it and we sat and talked about it and we all had our opinions and, you know, brought up different points. And I think we were about split 50-50 on, on yeah. what we thought happened. Um, of course, you know, something that we'll never know. Like you said, it's a murder mystery. <laughs> well, there's, I, I should point out that the we just came out with the the, the revised edition and it's there there are two of them on amazon right now once the old book for 14.95 and the new one is 17.95 really just due to the fact that printing costs have risen quite a bit since the last one came out 
and I would urge people to get the, the newest version despite the added cost because it has some new insights okay death, uh, including um, like the uh, distillation of a coroner's report that came out at the time it uh, a lot of the locals thought that the coroners had done a slipshod job in investigating his death and I managed to uh, read the, the real coroner's report just recently, which is over 100 pages and is quite thorough. Right. And so it changed my own views a bit. So that's in the new edition. And okay. There's other, other uh, maybe a dozen new photos of Trapper and worthwhile getting, I think. Yeah, I'm going to have to get it because I have, I have the old book uh and it's been on my shelves for years and i was like hey, you know i really need to read this book um but then when i found out that there was a new edition i'm gonna have to buy it just so i can see all that additional information and the, and the photos as well um and I um, you're in texas too so you know you got other priorities <laughs> oh yes there's so much so much to do here in texas too yes mm -hmm. um so you know, you basically did this really great historical service for the area of Jupiter in, in writing this book. How has that kind of shaped um, the narrative of Trapper Nelson in the last 20 years? How has that evolved into, you know, I'm, I'm sure you do speaking uh, tours occasionally, different groups. I know you just did one with the, the at Jonathan Dickinson State Park. Is there anything that... I guess a mythos surrounding him still about in Jupiter or especially at the state park. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not really understanding your question. I guess um, I'm saying like, how, how have you, your book basically shaped and changed the narrative surrounding Trapper Nelson? Um, do you feel like that, that you've had a, a huge impact on, on the historic historical cultural influence of of him and in, in jupiter in that area does that make sense <laughs> well, did... I, I guess it's enhanced awareness of trapper nelson and caused more people to go up and visit his site which is the centerpiece of the park and maybe cause more people to come to the park uh, as for me personally it really led to the discovery. It wasn't on my brain at the time, but this area, as I said earlier, this area has had human uh, habitation for over 5,000 years and precious little was written about it. So it led me to the lighthouse where I was a docent at the time and made me want to research the history of Jupiter and, and this area and the lighthouse would, and that produced other books. And uh, one, the main one was called 5,000 Years on the Loxahatchee. That's that's a, a thick coffee table book. Um, with Probably the most definitive history of our area. Okay. And then uh, for those who wanted to go even deeper, I had one called A Light in the Wilderness, which is the story of the lighthouse per se and the development of Southeast Florida, because back when the lighthouse was built in 1860, 
there were only 600 people in the official U.S. census from Titusville all the way down to Miami, which didn't exist. Wow, yeah. So that was 600 people over a 200-mile stretch. And uh, just think, in, in generally three generations, we've gone to 8 million people. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And, now- I mean, that's, I'm, I'm in my 80s. So we're talking three Jim Snyder lifetimes. Um, and that's, we've gone to 8 million people. So it, it's the story of how it all started. And it's not just about the lighthouse. It's about why, why it developed. I mean, Jupiter was the, the southernmost communications point in the United States at the time. It had a Western Union station. And it had a, a weather bureau station that flagged down ships as they were going by, and they were required to report, you know, who they were, and and the weather bureau was required to tell them what the local weather conditions were. So that's that's one of the things that started that. And then there was the settlement all along Lake Worth. That's a twenty-two mile long lake. Um, and they had nobody there in 1860, and now it's all settled, and so forth. So, yeah, yeah. And then I wrote a book called, I think, which is the one book that people ought to read. It's called La Florida, and it's a story. It's a historical novel about how the Spanish supposedly discovered southern Florida, and the people that they ran into who were not the docile natives they expected to uh, till the ground for them and convert to Catholicism and (laughs) bidding. It was a very hostile group of the Calusa Indians and the Yega Indians over Jupiter who had been there for longer than Spain had been a nation. I mean, they they had been there 10,000 years, but they had been a cohesive nation for 2,000 years at a time when Spain was still a a collection of regional uh, kingdoms, you might say. Mm-hmm. So that's an important story. And yeah. I could go on, but that's enough. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's so many books. I'm going to have to pick up several of them. They sound very intriguing. I'm definitely... Well, I, I would like everybody to start with La Florida, then they could work up from there. So you, okay, okay, you know, I'll I'll check that talk one about out. The lighthouse, and then Trapper Nelson sort of comes last. He just had the guy I wrote about first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote in reverse order, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it is it's all very interesting. Is there anything you're working on right now? Uh, well, that's a nice question, Missy. Yes, I'm. I'm working on a book about Jonathan Dickinson. Oh, nice. Jonathan Dickinson, uh, I don't know if anybody knows anything about him, but I'll I'll start. He was an Englishman whose family owned 10,000 acres in Jamaica, starting out to be a sugar and rum plantation. And in 1696, they were headed with 25 people in a boat bound for Philadelphia. He was a Quaker, and Philadelphia was the heart of Quakerism. And they were going to sell a lot of merchandise. The boat was all loaded up. And unfortunately, they sailed in late August. You would have thought they might have known something about hurricanes. Right. (laughs) Hurricane drove them up on the beach in Jupiter Island. And there they were treated very 
rudely by the local Yega Indians of Jupiter Inlet. And <clears throat> over a long and torturous seven months, they were they they marched, I shouldn't say marched, they kind of hobbled up their way up the coast and sort of uh, conned their way with the Indians so that they could reach St. Augustine, which was manned by the Spanish who had recently signed a, a peace agreement with England. So the Spanish were hospital to them and eventually they reached Philadelphia. Well, two years later, a book came out called The Journal of Jonathan Dickinson, which was the biggest seller in Europe at the time. Wow. And it went through like 11 printings and it was all about the horrible, terrible conditions, the way they were treated. Uh, they had five people die along this forced march. And uh, and so Jonathan Dickinson was quite the hero. And it, it always had annoyed me that the book, number one, it was, it's written in Shakespearean English, very hard to follow. <laughs> it's a journal. Yeah. And, and secondly, it annoyed me because Jonathan Dickinson, who is very well educated, focuses only on the horrors that they face at the hands of the Indians. And nowhere ever is there any mention of the, the world uh, geopolitical situation that existed at the time. The, the rivalry between England, Spain, France, and the Netherlands. And the fact that the Indians were not kindly to Jonathan Dickinson and his party because the bloody English had come down from Jamaica and robbed them, kidnapped their family people to bring back as slaves in their rum plantation. Secondly, the, the colonies were just getting organized in Georgia and South Carolina, and they would hire friendly Indians to, to go down the coast in Florida and kidnap more Indians <sighs> to run their plantations as slaves. It was cheaper to go kidnap some Indians that way than it was to bring them across and bring slaves across from Africa in a boat. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> none of that was ever mentioned. <laughs> and I feel the need as a historian to write the whole story. I'm doing this almost out of my charity, you might say, because I don't expect 500 people to read the thing. But I think it'll be worth setting the record straight. Right. And and people, by the way, if the audience includes people who want to go visit Jonathan Dickinson State Park, it has absolutely nothing to do with the Jonathan Dickinson I just mentioned. Um, when the state park finally got organized or became legislative, was legislated by the state, they the the, the parks authority uh, wrote a letter to the people of Hope Sound. They, they didn't have a mayor or anything. They just had a chamber of commerce, and they said, "We don't know what to name this park. What, what would you suggest?" And they scratched their heads, and they thought, "Hmm, nothing ever important ever happened here." And by the way, this was like 1948. Let's say <laughs> nothing ever happened here. Oh yeah, Jonathan Dickinson. He he got famous by uh, landing here on his boat <laughs> in 1696. Let's name it Jonathan. Oh my gosh! So that's why we have that. Anyway, that's that's um, interesting. I did not know that.
Wow. Okay. Well, I'm definitely interested in that as well. That sounds like a piece of Florida history that we all should know for sure. Well, you and 440. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Good. Yes. Well, James, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me tonight and sharing a little bit about, you know, putting this book together, a little bit about Trapper Nelson and, you know, this, you have a unique writing history and all the cool books that you've written. Well, the last thing I wanted to end with is if you want to share your website as so people can find you. Yes, it's www.writersnyder.net. Perfect. And I will include that in the... Um... There's all my books on it. And along with posts that I do, I, I usually write one, one item on a, something serious and one on news about my books. And then another one on something frivolous, such as poetry. I did a, something on a nursery rhyme the other day. Oh. So there you have it. Awesome. Well, I will put that on the website as well with a podcast so people can find uh, that website and they can read more about you and where to find your books. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I think I know the people that I that I had chatted with about about Trapper Nelson. They're definitely going to be interested in, in what you have to say. And um, thank you. That's it for my conversation with James Snyder, author of Life and Death on the Loxahatchee. I highly recommend picking up this book and adding it to your backpack during your hikes this summer. It's an easy read and full of historical information that will give you a glimpse into a unique time period in Florida's history. You can find the information on where to buy the book and get information with the author in the show notes at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast and please consider sharing the podcast with other hikers. Until next time, happy hiking.